Welcome to Back from the Abyss. This is a place for stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I went back the other day and listened to episode one, Strawberries, which if you haven't listened to that, you should all go back and hear it. But what was so crazy was listening to how I announced the show. And here's what I did. I did something like this. Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I sounded sort of like scared, drugged, somber, sort of haunted. So I'm actually proud that I'm speaking at a more normal cadence here in season five, and I'm less nervous. And I'm actually really excited for today. Uh, I'm going to introduce our guest in just a minute, but our guest today is an expert, an amazing physician, and a super dear friend, but we'll get to that in just a sec. First, I want to start with a listener letter that I got. Love all the letters that you guys send, the emails. This is from Jesse in the Netherlands. I've been seeing a lot of people jump on the medical keto diet bandwagon recently, especially after Chris Palmer published his book, Brain Energy. On the one hand, I'm intrigued with his case studies of people with severe schizophrenia and bipolar one who become practically symptom-free, but I'm also skeptical with the idea of metabolic dysfunction of the brain as brain cells being presented as the cause and medical keto as the solution to all serious mental illness. In my opinion, silver bullets rarely exist, and the diet itself seems unsustainable for the environment and hard to follow for multiple other reasons. But then again, it seems to have a really good track record for epilepsy. What if they're onto something? What implications would that have? So what are your thoughts about metabolic causes and treatment of mental illness? Do you have experience with it? Have you seen it work in any of your patients? That's a great question. Now, I have not read Brain Energy. I've heard Chris Palmer on a bunch of podcasts. Uh, You know, I guess my first thought is we've been looking for a unifying cause of mental illness forever. You know, first it was mother, like schizophrenogenic mother, serotonin, it was trauma, it was not enough BDNF, it was not enough neuroplasticity. And then with the Human Genome Project, it was, hey, we just find the bad genes and then we'll root those out. And now it seems like the newest sort of holy grail for understanding mental illness is metabolic issues. Now, uh, I think it's good that we're looking for a parsimonious unifying explanation, but you know, it hasn't worked out in the past, so part of me is pretty skeptical. But the other reason I'm not crazy about this hypothesis is if it's true, and if keto is the answer, I feel like that is a really, really profoundly depressing thing, because it would be kind of like if we figured out that the cure for mental illness was running a five-minute mile. And so if you could tell all your people with serious mental illness, all you have to do, literally drop your meds, drop everything, and run a five-minute mile. There'd be some percentage of people who could do that, and everyone else couldn't. But except the other thing is, you know, with keto, you have to stay on it indefinitely. So you'd be telling your patient with really serious mental illness, not you only have to run a five-minute mile, and you only have to do that, let's say, every other month forever. So... It just seems like in 2024, keto is not happening. You know, if it were 20,000 years ago and we had leaves and meat with occasional honey, I think we could do it. But I just think with Cinnabon and Dairy Queen blizzards and all this stuff, like I just don't know how keto is going to happen. So I appreciate that letter. I also wanted to give a big shout out to all of our listeners. Um, Anytime I talk to people about Back from the Abyss, you know, I always ask listeners, how did you find the podcast? And nine times out of 10, people say someone shared it with me. So thank you for sharing episodes. And the other thing I just realized is, um, as some of you know, I have three adult girls. And whenever they see me use my cell phone, they cringe, they laugh, they moan, like, Dad, you have no idea how to use your phone. And I bet there's a significant percentage of our listeners, because I know a lot of our listeners are 40 plus, (laughs) who actually don't know how to share an episode. So let me tell you how you do it. So if you have an episode of Back from the Abyss you really want to share with someone, look for three little dots on the screen. And for everyone else who's just groaning right now, I'm sorry, but look for three little dots on the Spotify screen or the Apple podcast. Click on that and you will find share. So if this episode moves you or any others, share, share, share. And let me just give you the results of your sharing. I just looked the other day. Our last five episodes have been downloaded in 105 countries in 3,157 towns and cities all over the globe. And that's because of all of you. So thank you.
right, let's segue into an episode I'm really excited to do. Uh, I've been getting a lot of listener requests to talk about psychiatry in the ER. And it, it was very clear to me from the first request who would, it would have to be. It would have to be Treve Henwood. But I just we had to figure out how to make that happen time-wise, and he's finally here. And let me tell you why I invited Dr. Treve Henwood here to do this episode with me. Number one, Treve uh, has been an emergency medicine physician for over 20 years. He specializes in working in rural ERs. My first introduction to podcasts was on his Rural EM podcast years ago. He and a, and a colleague used to do a podcast called Rural EM, Rural Emergency Medicine. And so he had me on there a few times as the psychiatric expert, and it was so much fun. I thought, I got to start a podcast. So, Treve, I'm really grateful for you getting me on this. And I also love that Treve has mostly worked in real, rural ERs because... You know, if you're in a big city ER, you can bring in psychiatry as support. But in most ERs in the country, there are no psychiatrists. There are no psych NPs. There's no psych PAs. There might be a master's level clinician, but the psychiatric care really falls upon the emergency medicine physician. One of the cool things about working in the biz, like being in medicine, is I have um, a handful of dear friends who work in other specialties. But as a psychiatrist, to have an ER doc on my phone who I can reach out to, and I think Treve would say maybe the same thing about me, but many times over the years, Treve and I are, you know, curbsiding each other, texting like, "What the heck?" or "What pictures of rashes?" or so. I appreciate you being my ER doc on call for the last twenty years. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you mentioned, you know, community in rural EDs, we don't have, we don't have any psych support most of the time. If we're really fortunate, we might have a. A uh, therapist who uh, comes to do some evaluations and will sit with the patients. Um, but oftentimes when it comes to medications or starting medications or modifying medications or having an acutely psychotic or acutely ill patient where I need some help or guidance, you've been invaluable because I've been able to <laughs> send you a re- rather long text with lots of detail and, and say, you know, what medication should I start with this? And, and you've always been amazing. And that's been a 20-year journey. So. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. Why don't we start with, you know, in the rural ERs where you've spent your career, what are the most common psychiatric cases or presentations that you see? So in regards to psych, whether you're in a rural ED or community ED or even a large you know, tertiary center or a big town, two of the most common things that you see, and you'll see it every single day, are one, alcohol-related psych diagnosis. So for example, chronic severe anxiety, which is then they treat with alcohol, then they're debilitated by their alcoholism. So it's that chronic circular pattern where if they're not drinking, they become anxious. If they try to come off their alcohol and have any sort of success, they often have underlying psychiatric conditions, often an anxiety component, and then they start treating it again with their alcohol. The other thing we see is a lot of psychosis that is not necessarily organic. It's, it's, it's basically from drug, drug-induced psychosis, and the number one thing is meth. Mm-hmm. So we see a lot of meth-induced psychosis. We keep hearing that meth is going to go away or going to diminish, but it, doesn't, it seems to be no. raging as much as ever. It's, it's here. It's inexpensive. They do TV shows about it. People, people have easy access to it. And it helps to address a lot of their pain Mm -hmm. sometimes. I mean, short-term help, long-term harm. So a lot of that is something we see daily. I see it every day when I, every shift I work, I'll see that. Meth-induced psychosis. Meth-induced psychosis, Mm alcohol-related. How about THC-induced psychosis? So THC-induced psychosis is something that I do see. And it's one of those things that in the last 20 years, if you would have asked me that question five years ago, seven years ago, I would have said, not really. 
No, maybe once or twice a year, but that's not true anymore. And with the more freedom and ability to use THC, um, even though it's somewhat regulated or is regulated, the potency of the THC over the last decade has steadily increased. And as the folks who produce it and market it and sell it um you know they're they're good at what they do and, and i'm not saying this in a negative way like i'm anti-marijuana anti-cbd anti-thc but it's become much more potent and the delivery mechanism of it is also more efficient mm-hmm. so what we see is Occasionally, we'll see somebody like your grandmother who somebody says, Grandma, here, we gave you the Snickers bar. Just take a little bit every night um, before you go to bed. It's going to really help with your back pain and your aches, and it's going to help you sleep. And she has a little sliver that they showed her how much to have, and it's so good that she eats the whole Snickers bar. So then she comes in a bit psychotic, and uh, that's kind of a hot mess she, they end up staying in the hospital for usually 24 hours and then they clear and then they're fine mm-hmm. but the one what we see that's a lot more seriously unfortunately is um i'll see high school 17 18 year olds primarily males ma- overwhelming majority of males who have an acute psychotic break that is related to the thc mm-hmm. and when i see them it's one of those when, when we, in medicine, one of the things we do is we look for patterns and we see patterns. And, and as you become an expert in whatever your specialty is, cardiology, emergency medicine, pulmonology, psychiatry, you, you, you have the patients that you see and you see the telltale signs and the patterns. And it helps you in making your diagnosis as you're following that pathway to try and figure out how to help them. And I can tell you, like the, the psychotic, acutely psychotic 17-year-old males that come in, they come in from THC. It's almost like I can see them walking down the hall or being brought down the hall to the room, and I just get the feeling I already know what's what it is. Because of the age? Age, how they hold themselves and walk, mm-hmm. listening to them speak. Yeah, how would you describe that, how they hold themselves and walk? They're usually fairly, supremely confident in mm. their walk and motion. Mm. They sometimes are paranoid, but when they're in their their personal environment, they're still that 17-year-old male. And then you go into the room and you start talking to them, and either they're by themselves, oftentimes they'll either be with a friend or a family member, and they have that, that feeling of they're very grandiose. Uh, when you ask them questions, they're confident, about their answers, but they're they're not even on the game board. They are completely off the wall. Mm. So it's rare for those patients with THC that I'm seeing to be really violent or aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could contrast THC-induced psychosis versus meth-induced psychosis. Like what? You know, as you're approaching the patient, as you're starting to kind of get those... Meth-induced psychosis, it really is on a spectrum. So people who chronically use meth will have a slightly different presentation of psychosis than those who are fairly new to meth. Uh, A lot of younger people who have been using meth and are on the earlier part of the spectrum of chronic meth use... They tend to be a little more angry, a little more aggressive. They have more physical findings, teeth grinding, that type of thing. Agitated and short fuse. As they go down the meth pathway, some of that, some of that more aggressive behavior seems to not... It doesn't burn out, but it's not as upfront. Um, and then you'll see the chronicity from their abuse... Both physically, it's almost like, you know, it's affecting their teeth, it's affecting their skin, they're, us- they're losing weight, it affects their, uh, they're not eating, and so their n- nutrition, and, and um, so therefore their metabolism just isn't as efficient. And, and that starts to manifest itself also in how they demonstrate their psychosis. So a lot of times with those folks, by the time they're down there, they've had multiple other physical medical issues 
um, that have now affected them. And some of them are serious. Some of them are infection from needle use or from exposure or from secondary underlying illnesses that were then not treated. And so you see all of that building together. And so it's just a different presentation. Mm -hmm. How often do you see delusional parasitosis? I've seen that in my office maybe three times last 15 years where you know, heavy meth users are convinced that um, bugs are sort of laying larvae and eggs underneath their skin. And so they'll just gouge themselves with knives and other sharp ob- objects to try to get the egg cases and the larvae out. Yeah. Have you seen that much? Once a week. Once a week. Wow. Sometimes two or three times a week in yeah. different people. And, and then they'll come in, you know, and they'll come in with abscesses from either gouging themselves or from skin popping um, and those, and, and they, and, you know, and they're convinced and you can tell them whatever you want to and, and be as honest mm-hmm. and try and be as clear and try to be as objective and a, unemotional doesn't matter. They know that that's in there. It's crawling and it's moving around. It's not only under their skin, it's moving from their skin on their forearm up to behind their eye. And, mm-hmm. and now it's on their back of their neck. Can't you see it moving? I can feel it crawling under my skin. And they're very convinced, and it's very, you know, that's not an easy, you, you can't convince them it's not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're... Uh, and it seems like that's a meth thing. Like, I don't know if I've seen it from cocaine. I'm sure it's possible, but... It's not something I would see regularly or ever in cocaine. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen other psychotic behavior, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on how much and how quickly. But mm-hmm. with, no, that's very, I would say that's very much a meth thing. Yeah. How quickly will they own it? You know, whether it's a new user depends or a on, chronic user? Depends on, one, what their reason for being in the mm-hmm. emergency department mm-hmm. is. So, and, and two, it's, it's, you know, it's, every patient's a little different. You got to treat them differently. But, you know, if you're direct with them and pretty blunt and honest, um, you know, a lot of them will say, yeah, I've used, or I do use, or I've used recently. And then what they say is I say, well, did you use today? And then they say, no, it was three days ago, which really means it was like three hours ago in the parking <laughs> lot before they came in. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like an alcoholic, yeah. you know, I mean, I hate, to, well, it's, it's just true. People, yeah. I mean, people embellish. Addiction is a liar's disease. Yeah. And yeah. they lie. And, and, you know, it's like, hey, how much do you drink? Yeah. And, you know, well, I drink four beers a night. Well, mm-hmm. no alcoholic buys a six pack and dry, drinks four and leaves two in the fridge. So they drink six. They, mm-hmm. If they say they buy a six pack, they're drinking a six pack minimum. You know, that's just my example. So you don't buy a bottle of, of vodka, whatever the size is, and leave any in it when you're an alcoholic. You mm-hmm. just don't. It reminds um, me of this guy I saw in the ER years ago back in residency, and he told me he drank a 30 pack a day. I didn't even know they made that. And I, I asked him if they made a 36 pack, would you drink that? And he thought for a second, he said, I would. Yeah. 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 I'm going to give you a, a story about acute psychosis with meth in which people don't normally use meth. So this is in a rural ED. Um, these two gentlemen uh, who were good friends every year, this is what they told me at the end. I mean, after I got all the story out and they were in the hospital and I was able to talk to him again because I was so interested. And that was every year they would leave their wives and their kids and they would go out for a couple nights uh, out into the desert and camp and they would smoke meth, <laughs> which was one of those things where I was this is like, like... men's camp. Yeah, I was like, seriously? But I didn't know, I mean, that was one of those ones like, okay. So they got into this meth that they brought along and it was, I don't, I don't know if it was more potent or if they did more or what happened. But at any rate, they both became incredibly psychotic. Both became very paranoid. They're out in the desert. They both rip off all their clothes, leave their campsite and one guy shows up the next day because he was seen on the side of a road naked and like just kind of like crawling along and EMS went and picked him up and he was kind of able to give the story, but he was still pretty psychotic and he was horribly sunburned, like blisters everywhere, bright red. I mean, his scrotum had bad sunburn 
and he had cactus quills everywhere because he had run through naked through all of these different patches of cactus. Mm. So as you can imagine, and when I say everywhere, I mean head to toe, head to toe. So we were able to take care of him. He was in the ED for probably six hours while we got all the quills mostly out, hydrated him, and kind of got him going. But his buddy had not been found yet. Well, he was found another 24 hours later, and he was actually in the ICU by the time they brought him in because he was in acute kidney failure. He was so dehydrated, and he had done permanent damage to his kidneys and had horrible burns uh, and then also some injuries from falling. He'd had a closed head injury and uh, some open wounds. And so there you go. Like Those were two guys who, quote, did not do math 363 days a year, but... Boom. So, mm. you know, that's like one extreme. And, and I still, to this day, I, I just am, have always thought, I have no idea where the, let's go do some meth once a year and have a great time. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's the acute, most acute of the acute. And then you see the chronic people who have gotten, car, you know, cardiomyopathy and infections in their heart and joints from shooting up. And then they can't stop. They still... You know, you treat them, they're in the ICU, you treat them for their horrible heart condition, which is going to end their life if they don't get the treatment, and they keep falling off the radar, going back, starting their meth use again, then they come back into the hospital because they get more sick, and it's just, and you watch the slow progression, and Mm -hmm. those people die, and they either die from kidney or heart failure or both, and Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's over months. Yeah. with challenging cases in the ER do you find that it's more psychiatric cases that you don't know what to do or is it that you know what to do and that's not going to happen does that make sense yeah so the the real challenging cases are the ones where you don't maybe one don't know the best medication to maybe start them on in the ED. And the second part of that is you don't have a good disposition. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, when families bring a loved one into the emergency department and it's for, let's say, bipolar mania, and they're not so manic that they need to be inpatient yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know where it's going, you know where it's going, but they don't have that support. And in these rural areas, we don't have, like, I can't just call and get him in right away to see a psychiatrist or to get into a day treatment or to, there's no options like that. And so, and then, you know, and when somebody's manic and you're asking them to try and start some medication, oh, I see you were on lithium in the past. Let's get you started on some lithium. And they, they're like, they're feeling great. And they're not going to listen to me and their loved one right now. And it's that really tough. Those are tough, tough cases because you don't have that support. And you can't. And you don't have a relationship. You you have no yeah, relationship. Because you know I've found in my practice that you know if I have a tight enough relationship with someone, even as they're going into mania or psychosis, I sometimes can rely on that, and they'll trust mm-hmm. me. Like, hey, take yep. this medication. But yeah, yep. they don't know you. Yeah. And you're saying, hey, I'm worried about you getting manic. Mm-hmm. Take this lithium. Yeah, and usually by the time we see them, they're fairly at least moderately deep into their mania, but they're going the wrong direction. Yeah. And with mania, they can have paranoia. They can, I mean, uh, you know, like, like there can be lots of different parts to that mania. And you're, so that's the other part is, is we're not as ER physicians, 
we're, we don't have the same training and background as a psychiatrist, and we don't have the experience of working with patients that you, where you see them across the spectrum. We see them at the end, when they're at their extreme. If you come in and you're feeling depressed and you're feeling a little suicidal, but you don't have a plan and you haven't really attempted suicide, that's not sick in the sense of somebody who comes in who's just attempted to harm themselves, had a plan, tried to put that plan in place, and that's different. So you got the sick versus not sick. And then sometimes they're sick and you can make interventions and bring them back from being sick to maybe something that now they're not as sick and we can slow down a little bit. And then the second part of that is when you're in the emergency department, okay, are you sick or not sick? And then it's the disposition. Is this person going to be able to go home? Is this person going to be able to go somewhere else but need to be in the ED for X amount of time? Or is this person obviously need to be admitted? So when you have a sick psychiatric patient, and you know they need to be admitted, that's the other difficult area. Because if you're 17, now you're talking about a, quote, pediatric bed. And where are those? Where are those? If you're over 17, so if you're 18 or older, now it's the same story. In western Colorado, where I practice, there are very, very limited psychiatric beds. So oftentimes we don't have, and, and, for, and this is for the sick patients, so oftentimes we don't have an appropriate place to place those patients so they can get the best treatment. So they can get treatment with a psychiatrist where they can help and therapy and start medications in a safe inpatient situation. Mm-hmm. Psychotic, manic, suicidal. Where am I going to get that bed? Yeah. And so it's not like I say, oh, Sorry, you got to go back out on the street, or you got to go back home with your parents. But now we're taking the sick psychiatric patient and we're admitting them to the hospitalist team. Hmm. And the hospitalists are hardworking, very intelligent physicians who care, but they're not the psychiatric team, and that's not their specialty, and that's not where they did their training. So it's like if I asked you, Dr. Heacock, hey, do you mind taking over the ICU for the weekend? You would be like, no, I, I really do mind because you don't want me to do that. No. And, and so you're asking these, patients, these physicians who that's not where their training is. And you know, we're asking them, okay, we can't find a psych bed. So we're going to have to admit this patient to the hospital. And we know that's really not appropriate, but that's the best we can do. And, you know, the best we can do for psych is often not nearly as good as the best we can do for cardiology or pulmonology Mm -hmm. or rheumatology or orthopedics. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the themes that I hear a lot in my work with families and has been sort of spotlighted on the podcast before is, you know, a family that has a family member in psychiatric crisis and they go to the ER. And this could be here in Fort Collins or Boulder, Denver. Mm -hmm. Like this doesn't have to be rural Western Colorado. And they get evaluated, and they get sent home. Yeah. And people are so frustrated and angry. Like, how could the ER yeah. send my kid home? Yeah. And I think what people don't understand is the bar for psychiatric admission is very high. And there are very few beds. Exactly. And it's also, you're coming into an environment where you think in your head, thank God they're coming to the emergency department because now the physician's going to see them. They're going to see this. Obviously, he need or she needs help, and they're going to know, and they're going to get me all the help I, I, that my son, my daughter, my husband needs, and that just doesn't happen, and you know, it's multifactorial. That's pretty hard pill to swallow for loved ones when they're like, this is not my child. This is not this is not a healthy version of my husband or my wife and how can you send them home? Mm-hmm. And you know, so so that's a that's a real challenge and that's something we see often. Mm-hmm. And, and it's frustrating as physicians as well and we we have to try and work within the system. You know, anytime you can get a patient into a psych facility where it's appropriate you're it's a big victory but Mm -hmm. it it, how many how often a year does that happen for me where i go directly from the ed to the appropriate psych facility 
If I take suicide, severe suicide, like we're worried they're going to kill themselves today, if I take that off the table, maybe three times a year. One thing I hear from my patients a lot is they are very often very worried that when they interact with other parts of the medical system, so non-psychiatric parts, that when other docs see their psychiatric diagnoses, see that they're on lithium or clozapine or risperidone, that there's going to be judgment, there's going to be fear, there's going to be dismissal, or people they won't be believed, or they'll be discounted. Um, and so I wonder, and this is a complicated um, question, and I know you and I have talked about it before the recording, but I wonder if there is a general sort of way that emergency medicine physicians kind of view psychiatric patients in the ER, given all these things we've talked about, given that disposition can be so brutal, given that people have to be so ill to qualify for inpatient care, given that um, often the treatments that people need are just not available in the ER. Mm. So in answering the question about do do we judge these patients or feel like, oh gosh, I don't want to see this patient or I'm not going to trust this patient, or I would say no. Overall, the majority of emergency medicine physicians that I've had the privilege of working with are very empathetic and they're understanding of that situation. So they do care. The difficult part is I work with emergency medicine physicians that aren't comfortable with making decisions in psychiatric base or psychiatric illness, not diagnosis, but treatment decisions for mm-hmm. acutely ill patients. One, in your training, you don't do a lot of that. We don't do any because you're in a tertiary care hospital, yeah. probably with psych residents there. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and you might do two weeks of psych up on the inpatient floor during your whole residency, but that's still you're working with uh, an attending who has decided and met with those patients and seen those patients and made that valuation, and you are just kind of following their orders. And you're really not establishing relationships and you're just getting to understand, well, these are the medications they tend to use. So you have that. Two, you have a hospital system that doesn't support it because really ill psych patients also have a lot of social issues usually and they fall through the cracks. So you have schizoaffective or schizophrenic patients that are homeless or live in a group home and don't really, and have the, if they have any coverage for their medications it's the bare bones it's it's medicaid so your hospital you know if you know that maybe uh zyprexazitis would be really nice to have in the ed well that costs a lot of money we're not mm-hmm. going to have that one we'll have generic you know but sometimes that's just one example mm-hmm. but you know what we really have we have haldol and that's pennies well that's not the best medication to use but we have it and that's pennies mm-hmm. so that's another example And you have these patients who come in, they have an illness, the physicians do care, but then you have to make those decisions and you're not comfortable with the medicines and it's hard to decide, okay, I'm going to start this patient on a medication that maybe has a black box warning or has a side effect profile that can be pretty serious and can affect the person for a very long period of time. And I'm not going to have the follow-up. So if something bad happens, that's on me. Plus... I don't write for these medicines on a regular basis, so I'm not really comfortable writing for them. Um, and, and that, for me, for a long time, I always had Dr. Heacock. I could, if I could get the record, I could look at it, and then I had any questions, I would text you and say, this person's on these four medicines, and you know, this specific medicine is a really high dose. Could, is this safe? And you would say, you know, and you'd, you'd always give me the response so that it would help me in making those decisions. 
Um, but a lot of physicians don't have that option. Mm. So how many times do does a psychiatrist come into the ED to see patients? Maybe we should start a business. Ask a psychiatrist. <laughs> ask an ER doc. You would be busy. Yeah, we'd be busy. <laughs> no. You know, and that's not a knock on the psychiatrist either. No. I'm just saying we don't have psychiatrists aren't in the ED no. and in a rural place rural EDs or community EDs. They're just not. Mm -hmm. I wish they were. I wish we had those services. It would be so beneficial and helpful for families and patients. My sense is psychiatrically, one of the most difficult, maybe the most difficult thing that ER docs are asked to do regularly is evaluate suicidality and dispo that. Yeah. I'm wondering what you, I'm curious how you think about suicidality in ER, but, but more specifically, what do you think ER docs do pretty well around evaluating suicidality? What do you think? ER docs maybe miss because of their training or lack thereof, or just sort of the, the way they think about this? Well, it always helps if you've had a relationship, a prior relationship with a patient, and you're usually meeting this patient for the first time. You're trying to develop so that they have a little bit of trust. But usually the patient's 50% of the time, the patient's in there and they don't want to be in there. They were brought in. So now they have already don't like the system. They've been stripped of their clothes, checked for weapons. Now they're in a gown and underneath the gown, they're naked. They're in a room where there's no sink. There's, there's just four walls because they, you don't want them to try and hang themselves or harm themselves. So they're basically in a room that's not a room. I mean, it's not warm. So now they're isolated and, and usually that creates a lot of fear. It creates a lot of resentment and it doesn't help to build and bond trust. Then the, you know, it's a busy day in the emergency department and you're going in there and your question is, is this person going to harm themselves and commit su try, attempt suicide? Or is this person having suicidal thoughts or feeling a bit suicidal or feeling, you know, has some underlying history and, but probably, you know, they're not going to do that. If I can make that decision, then that person's probably going to be able to go home or go somewhere where they have somebody with them and safe. And so the question is, are they going to do it or are they not going to do it? And that's a brutal question. Like to, to, cause you're not, you're not, connecting with the person and trying to help you're asking are they going to do it or are they not going to do it some er docs are like we're just going to do the blood screen i'm going to ask them i'm going to look at their history i'm going to call the site counselor and that's it that's all i'm doing hmm. and then we'll make a decision and as far as i'm concerned they're an m1 hold unless they can prove they're not and that means we're gonna the m1 holds means we're gonna put them inpatient and against their will or you know they that's what's going to happen they don't have any choice um and other physicians are like well let's sit and see if we can get any more information they'll dig a little deeper they'll make some phone calls sometimes to family members or if there's a mental health history they might reach out to the counselor or to the psychiatrist and dig a little deeper and you know and but every time you do that you're adding time to the clock as well and you're in a department where time matters because mm -hmm. you're trying to move people out and dispo them i remember as a resident having a few calls with attendings in the middle of the night and um suicidal patient the attending would ask well did, what did the family say mm -hmm. and i would these you know early on it's a why i didn't call the family i didn't have permission and they would say this is an emergency. This is life and death. Like HIPAA is out the window. Mm -hmm. So after two or three late night phone calls with attendings, I realized, yeah, it doesn't matter if the person yeah. says, don't, don't call my family. So, but, but still like, I can't tell you how, like I don't do much ER psychiatry now in my private practice, but when I worked at a psych hospital after residency, I'd often talk to the psychiatric clinicians in the ER who would call me and they're describing suicidal patients and 
almost invariably when I would ask, did you talk to, what did the family say? They said, well, we didn't call because we didn't have permission. And I said, you do not need permission in a case of emergency. And they said, well, I just don't feel comfortable. And I would have sometimes back and forth with people. So I wonder, do you have a sense with ER docs? I mean, are, yeah, for sure it's a time issue, but do you feel like there's a HIPAA fear that for some ER docs, there is a HIPAA fear. Like I'm not calling because it's crossing that boundary. For some, it doesn't matter. I, I call if it's, you know, and, and I mean, you know, sometimes you're calling grandmother who is the only relative that you can get a hold of and she lives in Tennessee. And, you know, you get a hold of him and she, she or he says, we haven't seen him in two and a half years. Yeah. And I don't know what I can do to help you. And he'll be like, I don't know where his parents are. He has siblings. I haven't seen them in four years. And, you know, you get that whole just explosion of cluster of there is no family unit. There is no nucleus. And then you get the other thing where you are, you'll see people come in and you've got the 15 year old female who's suicidal and self harms and has been in and out of facilities and you have family members who are there and you can see how explosive it becomes when they're there. And you also don't know, like, is the family member part of the issue? Are they sexually abusing or have they in the past? Are they physically or emotionally? Are they part of the reason this person has some of these issues? And so, you know, I reach out to the families and Sometimes I get, I'm get, they're like, they're not dead yet. Good. You know, and that's it. But sometimes you get, oh, thank God. Thank you for calling. And you get all kinds of important information that they didn't tell you or didn't want to tell you. But you also have to be really respectful of that person's history and, and be careful how you go about it. Because, you know, the last thing you'd want to do and is put them back in a situation where they escaped from in the first place because mm-hmm. some horrible thing was happening to them, whether it was sexual abuse or total neglect or, or whatever it was in the past. Yeah. And so it's a complex issue. And I would say different ER docs are comfortable at different levels. Mm-hmm. I would often give the patient in the ER the choice. I would say, I'm going to contact a family member, mm-hmm. and, but I'd like you to choose one. Yeah. That's right. They could be an abusive relationship or there could, yeah, there could be some like yeah. huge shame dump or something that could come back to them if you talk to the wrong family member. Yeah. But, you know, if you just turn, because one of the things I constantly talk about in, th- in therapy or when I'm mentoring people is, you know, turn the tables. And I'm just imagining if I had a family member in the ER that was suicidal and um, they're trying to evaluate this person and my family member said, well, don't talk to anyone in my family. You don't have permission. And then they go off and kill themselves. How that's just the most horrible thought. I mean, you know, people are not in their right mind Yeah. when they're exactly. And, and we can't treat them, treat them like they are in their right mind. They're not. No, no. And I've had it go both ways where I've had, you know, the, the patient has sat there and calmly talked to me and been sold, sold it really well. And I'm feeling pretty good about them. And then I talk to the spouse or I talk to the mother or I talk to the whatever family member and you get the backstory that they were very careful not to. And, it, and then you're like, oh, this changes everything. Um, but I've also gotten the situation where I've tried to get that trust going. I've had, you know, as good a trust as I can get. And then I'm get, I don't know, I'll say, I'm going to talk to one of your family members. Is that okay? And, you know, we're trying to help you here and we're trying to get some insight and and we're also trying to see you know what what are some other options and you might as well just set the barn on fire and mm-hmm. you know then all trust is gone and yeah. you know so so you got to try i think but it's like you say it's it's uh or even like the gun thing again you and i have explored that on your oh. podcast you know there's you know there's sort of this four qualities that make up, you know, like 70% of suicides in the U.S., you know, older mm-hmm. male, white, oh, five, guns and alcohol. Guns and alcohol, yeah. But guns being the most critical thing because, you know, fortunately it's not easy to kill yourself. You know, mm-hmm. even hanging, I think, has like a 65% success rate. But guns, I don't know, 97, 98. But do you, 
I wonder how and when do you talk to people in the ER about guns at home? And then what do you see your colleagues doing? I think over probably the last 10, 15 years, I think it's become much more prevalent in ED for for the physicians and the counselors to say, are there guns in the house? You know, do they have access to guns? The other thing I will say is, and this is speaking from me being in rural areas, I have so many times worked with local sheriffs, local policemen who bend over backwards to try and help. And they're good people and they do care. The ones you see in the news who were holding the person down and bad outcomes happen, I mean, those things certainly do happen. I I don't deny it. But overwhelmingly, I think policemen and sheriffs, those type of people, they do a great job and they're out there all the time and they do care. And I I have had many instances where they have gone above and beyond to help me try and find out information that's vital and has made a real difference in helping that person that's in the ED. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd put that, that's a shout out. I hadn't even really thought about that when we were talking about this podcast, but I'm just playing through lots of different patients I've had and how many times that has come to been really beneficial. I was just out to coffee this morning with another psychiatrist and she was asking me about my solo private practice and she said, what do you do about call? I said, well, I'm on, you know, 24 seven call for all my patients. And she asked, how was that? And I said, you know, it's actually a lot easier than when I used to be in a rotating call with a big clinic and hospital because I know everyone. Mm-hmm. So when you someone's name, I know, yeah. So when someone comes, you know, I'll like, oh, this call I can get back to. This is someone urgent. I mean, I have a history with everyone. So whereas, you know, when I took call for a bunch of other docs or, what you, or your situation is these cases come up that I have no history, no relationship, you know, and gosh, psychiatry is so much about relationships. So trying to make a reasonable not, not even diagnosis, but just disposition. Like, what do we do with this person at 2 a.m.? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I feel for you and everybody yeah. who's trying to do that who doesn't have prior relationship. curious how you think about this issue and how you think sort of the ER doc community does, but it's this idea that someone comes in psychiatrically ill and you realize uh, this person could really benefit from medication X, could be getting back on the lithium or olanzapine because you know you know that I love that and I would text you back, <laughs> treat olanzapine 10 yeah, um, or whatever, but... Hot but dial 10. But it seems like... When my patients end up in the ER, and it seems really obvious to me that they could use sometimes, many people I haven't seen for a while, they could use like five days of lithium or five nights of olanzapine 10 to sort of like tie them over until they see me. But it seems like most emergency rooms are not wanting or willing to even pass out a very small supply of psych meds. I mean, has that been your experience? So the hospital won't pass them out. One, because they won't carry them. To, Nobody in prescription, like, but yeah, like and so generic olanzapine that's super yeah. cheap. But then the physicians, the individual physicians, it's very dependent upon the physician. So, um, and why, yeah, what's going through people's head? Because for me, it's so obvious. I said, you know, you and I've joked, like in the podcast, listeners know that you know, I've said before, you could run a psychiatric hospital just with olanzapine because mm-hmm. it's good for sleep, psychosis, yep. mood stabilization, like everything. But, you know, I, I, part of me wants to go to the ER doc convention and just say, everybody just keep five tabs of generic olanzapine in your pocket. It's going to cost you, you know, a dollar ten, and just give them to people because they'll sleep, they'll chill out, yep. it'll help withdrawal, help their anxiety. It'll buy them just a little piece until they can figure out what's next. Maybe what we're asking is, it seems like some ER docs are really like, okay, 
I'm treating you at this point of time. And some, I think like you are, have a little bigger time horizon. Like, yeah. Hey, you might just be back yeah. in a day or two. Maybe I could do something. Well, it, that would keep you what, out of the year. what I look at is, is if I can find a history and I can find a background so that I know what they've been on, I can see good notes and, and, or, and I can get a decent history from the patient and I know what they've been on. You know, I, I'm not saying, so what's your olanzapine dose? What I'm saying is, have you been on olanzapine or maybe I see it and then I'll go and sit and talk to him. If I know some of these medicines have worked in the past for them, um, I'm more than happy to refill them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, ER docs will refill benzodiazepines because they don't want them to go through withdrawal and seize. And so if you have these, you know, you got the 68-year-old who's been on Valium for 23 years, and she's run out of her Valium and she's visiting from California, she's going to get her Valium because mm-hmm. they don't want her back seizing. Right. But you got somebody that's bipolar and has been on been off their lithium for three weeks, and they come in and ask for help. Sometimes those same docs won't write for lithium. And I, I, I'm not going to throw them under the bus and crucify them, but I'm mm. also like, they're not as comfortable with those meds. Yeah. Speaking of comfort, you and I talked about this issue on your podcast a few years ago. I know you have done this, and what, by this I mean giving suicidal or very depressed patients ketamine in the mm-hmm. ER. And uh, in your, on your podcast, we explored you know, what an actually kind of amazing tool that could be, especially in rural ERs where there's really no psych care at all, mm-hmm. but, you, but everybody's got ketamine. But I know you've had some real success with it with people, but have you met any other ER docs who will hang a bag of ketamine to treat someone who's suicidal? I've had two other ER docs who texted me and said, hey, I am going to give this person some ketamine because of what we talked about. And But everybody else is like, no, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I re- still do it. It's so I'm, rewarding. It has been my experience. I've had people who I started the ketamine in the department with them, and I had to stop it because they were having sort of PTSD type of symptoms that were brought out. Mm-hmm. Those would be the ones that failed. And and I know the ED is not the ideal spot to get ketamine, but I, I try and make it so that it's, you know, it's, quiet we get the room as quiet as we can light and and it's a lot of patient education beforehand but it's worth it and the number of patients i've had who've had a really good positive outcome from getting ketamine from me from either one dose and i've had a few patients who've been like using me as a ketamine clinic (laughs) over the years and i'm like you really need to get a somebody who can do it can help you yeah you know and they're like dr henwood i get this you gave me that ketamine it was the best three months i've had in 10 years Mm. and you know and i'm like great wouldn't you like to have that all the time maybe you should see a psychiatrist who can help you with the ketamine but i've had a lot of success with it and and you know a lot of that was i read the papers before and they talked about experimentally using it and the and it took me a year of going back and forth and a few patients who I was like, oh, this would be a perfect patient for ketamine. But I was just so nervous because I'm like, I'm the rural ER guy. I don't have any backup. I don't have a psych backup. I don't have a, you know, like what happens if this goes bad? Mm-hmm. But the, the, uh, ba- the other side of that is ER docs use ketamine probably more than any other specialty. We, right. I mean, we use it. Because they're experts in it. Yeah. We use it for peds. We use it for sedation. We use it for anxiety, you know, or, or mild psychosis. We use it for pain management. Um, we use it for intubation. I mean, there's I, like, we can keep talking about what we use it for. So to put it into my toolbox and say, and that's what I finally did. I was like, I use it for all these other things and, and, you know, I know the outcome. I've tried to uh, get some other physicians to use it and uh, had a little bit of success, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's uphill battle. Yeah. Some of the 
best stories in medicine, I think, involve terrible pain and humor. Yeah. Like kind of sick humor, which is yeah. what my story involves, <laughs> which I'll share from now. Okay. When I was a first year psych resident, um, we would work in the psych ER at Butler Hospital in Providence. And Butler Hospital doesn't have IVs. There's no ER. It's a bunch of psych residents and psychiatric patients, not a med surge hospital. So anyway, I was there one night late. It was me. And I think it was a second or third year resident, just two of us. And um, he was, I remember him being very doctory. He was wearing scrubs and a white coat. And I thought, oh, he looks so doctory. I usually, I usually would wear like sometimes, actually, no, I think I usually wore normal clothes, like a button down. But anyway, these two guys came running in the psyche or maybe at midnight. And one guy came in and just fell to the ground screaming. And the other guys, yells, he stabbed, he stabbed, somebody stabbed my buddy. And the guy's screaming, oh, and he's rolling around the floor. And so... And we could see blood, like blood's just soaking into his shirt. And so the upper level resident, he's like, get gloves. So he runs over and he puts on gloves and he runs over and he turns the guy over and he's got this just, you know, blood pouring out into his shirt and he pulls up his shirt and there's a big laceration in his abdomen. The resident whose name shall not be named, but if you're listening, hello, (laughs) he took his newly gloved finger he stuck it into the abdomen. It went all the way up to the, to the top knuckle. And he held it in there. And he looked at me and eyes just like bulged out of his head. And he pulled out his bloody fingers. And he said, that was his liver. <laughs> he walked over to me with his bloody finger. And he said, I don't think I should have done that. <laughs> oh. And so I just thought, oh, we man. are two psychiatry residents and we are physicians. We delivered babies and we did a little suturing and we did the surge rotation. Yeah. But really, we are psychiatrists. And yeah. we had, now one of us has a bloody we glove. Figured. And we, <laughs> no. I said, I th- and then he said, I think we should call 911. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, Done. And I could tell the story. Luckily, he lived and it was okay. And, you know, yeah. and, but I, um, yeah, I really like that story because it is really twisted. But, you know, I, I think humor is a way sometimes that we get through some of these really darkest times. It is. Yeah. And I think of some of the most success I've had in some real, in, in patience, dark times. And the thing that comes across is I didn't give the right medicine. I didn't give any medicine maybe, or maybe I did, but it's not, I didn't give the wrong medicine or the right medicine. I didn't make the amazing diagnosis that nobody else could make. I mean, I've all, we've all had days like that where they tell you you're the best doctor ever because you figured out they had brucellosis and nobody else could. But the thing that I know is that one thing in medicine that can be magical is showing how much you care And sometimes it's just little things like listening or sitting down closer to them or telling them, echoing that 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 had to be really painful or you must really feel alone because that happened and I'm sorry that happened or whatever it is. And they maybe feel just a little bit of love in the world for a little bit of time and that's just enough for that light to keep going or get brighter. And a lot of the patients who've responded the most to me that I remember are patients who have come back or thanked me just because of those little things and just said, you know, not necessarily you saved my life, but you cared, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of people, that's what they need is to know that they're somebody cares or mm-hmm. somebody loves them. Yeah. And I'm not a hugger. I do not hug in the ED. All the <laughs> nurses make fun of me because they know I am like, don't touch, don't grab, don't hug. <laughs> They're like, Dr. Hanwood, you don't, you don't even hug the nurses to say hello. I'm like, nope. <laughs> and uh, so occasionally some patient will like grab me and hug me in the hallway and just say thank you. And everybody makes a big deal of it mm. because they know that I'm like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, I'm a hugger. You hug me. I do. Yeah. That's good. But we have a 25, 35 year That's hug true. history. We have a 35 year <laughs> and, hug. And I hug other people just yeah. at work. Yeah. I'm not a hugger. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Really fun to have you on this. And again, super cool first full circle. That first time yeah. I sat down with a mic and headphones and did podcasts was with you. And here we're back years later. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for inviting me onto Rural EM. And thank you for oh, doing this. I, I'm so glad we got to do this. I, I, I could sit and talk 
for hours. We could do 10 of these. And I would, <laughs> your listeners would be like, get that guy off, get that guy off. But thank you. Yeah. Good to see you.